You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. I got it right this week. We are now NRM Streamcast. We'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we do it. If you'd like to contact the show, you can always call in at 844-999-9249. That may be difficult today. We have a... Another guest coming in on Skype all the way from Israel. A fascinating story. Her name is Hannah Studley. Um, she'll talk about PTSD. She'll talk about Hollywood. Um, before um, they got to use computers for everything. And she, I think, is Animaltronics. I'm not sure what it's called. She was involved in, and uh, I guess, creating all those lifelike uh, animals, even in uh, Disney World, I think Disneyland, Disney World, I don't remember which one, she'll tell us. Um, she's gone from London to, to LA to Israel. A fascinating story, all wrapped around how she learned to deal with PTSD and how she helps people nowadays. And maybe we should find out what PTSD is. It certainly sounds good. Um, we got to talk about this week's Torah portion. Uh, this week's Torah portion is Shalach. Um, we got the story of the spies. We got the story of uh, slander. We've got uh, people crying. And we're going to learn what happens, as all parents tell their children. Um, if you don't stop crying for no reason, I will give you something to cry about. And that's really what's going to take place in this week's Torah portion. So at least in our first segment, let's get through as much as we could in, in this week's Torah portion. And it almost helps to, um, to back up to what happened last week. So last week, we end the story with Moses' sister. Her name is Miriam. And she wanted, she was unhappy with a family situation with her brother and his wife. So she goes to her brother Aaron to talk about it. And it was considered slander. So God immediately calls Miriam and Aaron and Moses to the tabernacle. And he explains, you don't know who Moses is. You don't understand why he does what he does. He does everything according to my say-so and therefore was slander. And... Uh, Therefore, Miriam gets leprosy, or tsaras. That is the punishment for slander, or lashon hara. She has to go outside of the camp. We've discussed there were the clouds, the clouds of glory that surrounded the Jewish people. She has to go outside of those clouds and wait till the leprosy goes away, till she's healed, whatever word you want to use. And uh, really, the Jewish people were supposed to travel at that time. But because Miriam will have this leprosy for one week, so the Jewish people will actually wait and not travel for a full week till she's recovered. And by the way, God had told him it was going to be a week. That, that's also the end of the Torah portion. Why was Miriam rewarded that an entire nation is waiting around for a week till they're allowed to travel. And we are we are getting ready to travel towards the Holy Land till the mistake, the tragedy in this week's Torah portion. And the answer is because she waited around to see what was going to happen to her brother Moses when he was put in the river. 
the parents knew, Moses' parents knew that uh, the Egyptians were going to start searching their house. Moses had been born early. So um, the parents went, the best place to hide the kid is in the river, because who's looking in the river? That's where all the kids are being thrown. So Miriam hung around for a small amount of time, an hour, 20 minutes, debatable, till the daughter of Pharaoh comes and takes Moses out, and she goes and says, oh, I know a Jewish uh, midwife, uh, uh, a lady who got a nursemaid. So her reward is a week. Right? So she waited for 20 minutes, and her reward is she gets a full week. So that's like amazing the, 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 how much greater the reward is from just the action itself. Fine. So you would think everybody knew what happened. Right? Everybody knew. So you would think people would be a little more careful when it comes to slander, and then we get to this week's Torah portion. They're not more careful. They make a terrible mistake. So let's, let's get into the mistake. So we travel. We're in a place called Chatzeros. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people say, um, you know, this land that God's taken us to, we don't really know anything about it. Like, God keeps telling us, land flowing, milk and honey, and, and there's all these mighty kings there, and who knows what, and fruit, and um, we want to check it out. We would like some spies to go and see what's going on with this land. So now Moses has a problem. He knows he can't say, bad idea. God already told you it's going to be a great land, and it's fantastic. Uh, you're questioning God. How could you do that? So here's the problem. You go to buy a car. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a relative's friend. So you start asking a lot of questions. Oh, does the car do this, and how it breaks, and how does it handle? And if the reaction to your questions are, you don't trust me, I- I'm telling you it's good. You don't trust me. As soon as a guy says, you don't trust me, you don't trust him. So now here's the problem. If Moses is going to say, you don't trust God, now all of a sudden nobody's trusting. So Moses figures, everything they want, you want spies, you want to check it out, whatever you want, I'll take care of you, no problem. Thinking that, again, like the salesman, if everything you ask the salesman for, he says, no problem. You want to take the car, you want to have it home for a couple days, you want to bring it to your own mechanic, go right ahead. You want to, Everything you ask for, the guy says, okay. So now you start to think, so obviously... It's in good shape. Otherwise, he wouldn't let me walk out with it and hang on to it for a week or whatever he's offering. So therefore, Moses has to say, yes, spies, no problem. So he sets up 12 spies, one spy per tribe. Two of those spies he trusts. The other 10, it seems, he's not so trusting. One is Joshua, who he actually adds a letter to his name. His name was really Hosea. He changed his name to Yehoshua. So Hosea to Joshua. Why does he change his name? Because Moses knows that Joshua has an extra difficulty, I guess is a good word, an extra problem of, um, of going to the land of Israel and saying it's a great place. You see, also in last week's Torah portion, there was a prophecy said that it's not in the... Torah itself, it's the Medrash brings it down. So, Mo, so the the prophecy said Moses will die, and Joshua will lead the Jewish nation into the land of Israel. Joshua loves Moses; he doesn't want to lose Moses as a leader. And we're on our way into Israel. If we're really going into Israel, Moses is done. Joshua's taking over. So Moses knows his disciple, his student Joshua. The last thing he wants is that Moses should die. So maybe he'll think. 
he's doing everyone a favor by slandering the land, and they'll be in the desert longer, and Moses will live longer. You can imagine Joshua could have such a thought process. Therefore, Moses prays and adds a letter to Joshua's name that he should not have this difficulty. There's one other um, spy. His name was Kalev or Caleb, and he also was a trustworthy fellow, but we're, if we get there, we'll see he himself actually went and prayed in, um, in Hebron. He prayed by the, by the uh, cave of Machpelah, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, the, and uh, Sarah, and Rivka, and uh, Leah are all buried. So which, which I, I just saw this week is really fascinating. He, went, he didn't just pray wherever he was. He didn't go find a synagogue. He didn't go to the tabernacle to ask for extra prayers. He went to the graves of these great people to pray. Sounds like... Sounds like that a person is allowed to pray and ask for help from the deceased person. That's a very fascinating concept. First of all, you have to decide after a number of years, does the person at the gravesite actually know you're praying? Which is an interesting thought. Clearly, it must be so because otherwise he's wasting his time. Second of all, who says that this deceased person has the power to go before God to pray for you? Like, who says that's the way it works in heaven, right? You know, wherever everyone's spiritual spirit soul is, who says that that soul has the ability, is allowed, would it even help to pray to God? But the fact that Kalev goes to pray by the grave of these great people must be that you can pray there. And therefore, to this day, there's people that will always go to graves of great people and relatives, by the way, um, to pray. It's a very normal, common thing, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. It's not some type of idol worship or anything. It's certainly okay because we see great people did it. I'm sure I told you, my son came back from Israel recently. When he was in Israel, so they sell these books. They're very into graves of great people and the tribes and everybody else. They have books where all these graves are. So my son bought this book, and I think he thought the book was a checklist. I know we talked about this before. He, he like, went through the book, like, every single great person, the prayers to say there, and he rented cars and buses and certain places uh, like Shechem and Hebron. You, you can only go in the middle of the night when there's hundreds of soldiers, you know, protecting you with, you know, and no one's allowed in the street, you know, and there are buses. It's all, uh, they set it up so people can go. So he ran around to see many many grave sites and pray in many places and he was into that and the truth is I was not into it. I never bought the book and I didn't run around so much but he did. In any case, so what happens is Moses sends off these 12 spies and he gives them some fascinating instructions. First of all, he sends them through the south, that's really the desert area of Israel and to go towards the north, the idea being that you'll start in a place which is not as good and you'll end off in a in the fantastic area. So your 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 attitude when you come back is, yeah, the last thing we saw was unbelievable. Well, if you start with the best stuff and you end up with the not so good stuff, um, for some people, they, um, they'll come back with the wrong attitude. Again, it's debatable different ways. I always uh, joke as a kid, um, I did the same thing. I, in those days, we had white bread with toast. I mean, my breakfast was like four pieces of white bread and, and two eggs and my orange juice. 
And so it was white bread. It was all buttered. And, and I would always save the best looking piece for last. The problem is, by the time you finish the first three pieces, the last best piece is a little, you know, it's a little hard. It's not so hot anymore. But I, I knew that. But for some reason, uh, I did it anyways. But in any case, so the spies are going through the land. And, and now I want you to picture for yourself. They probably look something like me. Probably beards, probably dressed like uh, whatever you can think of a religious Jew is dressed like. Maybe they had hats. They who knows what they were. Dre- they weren't dressed like the Canaanite nation. So you got these twelve rabbis because they were going to be. They had to be good people at least at the beginning. So you have these twelve great rabbis that are walking through town. The the nations in Canaan know the Jewish people are out, are, are out of Egypt. They know that already. And they all know from earlier prophecies, they all know that the Jewish people are on their way to the land of then it was called the land of Canaan. They're going to end up in the land of Israel. They all know this. And you would imagine that they would be on the lookout for it. Um, it even says, um, when we the, the song we sang by the sea, it talks about how the Canaanite nations melted because they knew we were on our way. So you got 12 rabbis. Walking through town, maybe they're taking notes, looking here, there. I, I doubt they asked for directions. Maybe they did. So no one stopped them. No one said, are you guys spies? They probably would have said, yeah, like, these are not professional spies, mind you. So how did they manage to walk through town, town after town, vineyards, fruit, place after place, and nobody noticed? Like, come on, like, what gives? So interesting enough. Um, Rashi explains, other, others explain, um, either very great people or just people in different towns were dying. That way, when these great people in Canaan were dying or people in East Town were dying, everybody was busy with funerals. So they're so busy worrying about their own funerals that they have to take care of, they're not really paying attention to these 12 obvious spies walking through town. So... Uh, you would imagine that these 12 rabbis, that nobody is looking at them with a second glance, except maybe for some giants notice something strange. Um, if nobody's noticing them, they should automatically figure out and assume and say, hey, God is clearly taking care of us. God is taking care of us. No one is stopping us. We're not running from anybody. We're not hiding from anybody. No great miracles are taking place to protect us. That should have been their attitude. In other words, a person can open his eyes, see what happens, and then decide how to translate what's going on. They should have understood, look, all these miracles happening in the desert. They're getting the manna and the the well of water travels with them and the clouds of glory. All these things are taking place that you see God is taking care of you. So you can... You can continue the thought, we're going through the land of Israel, no one is bothering us, must be, God is taking care of us, must be. Unfortunately, these, well, 10 out of the 12 um, were planning on slandering the land. Why were they planning? There's different answers. Some say they were judges, not even high judges, like lower judges, and they knew once we go into the land of Israel, they're going to lose their prestige, they're going to lose their their power, they're going to lose their level. So they're not so happy going into the land of Israel. So they're looking for problems. If they're looking for problems, then they're certainly not going to open their eyes to be honest and say, uh, God took care of us and no one noticed we were spies. They didn't do it. As a matter of fact, they're going to come back and slander. 
Moses even gave them some uh, some ways of noticing, of recognizing um, if they're strong, if they're not strong, and whatever Moses said, they they decided to ignore. They're going to come back and they're going to say, "Oh, crazy country! Everybody's dying there. Crazy land." Like the exact thing that God was using to protect them, they used to go ahead and say, well, it's crazy land. They bring back humongous fruit, big pomegranates, dates. They had a cluster of grapes. It took eight of them with poles to carry. Also part of the plan. You know, you can bring this fantastic fruit and say, look at the fruit in this land. You can't, we couldn't go to a better land. Instead, they go ahead and say, crazy land, crazy fruit, crazy people, giants live there. We do not have the ability to conquer that land, which again becomes a, a, a fascinating statement. We, we are not strong enough to conquer the land. What do you mean we're not strong enough? We are not doing anything. God is, took out Egypt. You just saw him destroy the country. Uh, I'm sorry, he just um, destroyed the nation of Egypt by splitting the sea. He's feeding you in the desert. He's giving you water drink in the desert. You just saw the Torah given, whatever it was, a year earlier. You, you've watched all these miracles go ahead and you say, we're not strong enough. Obviously, they were saying, God is not strong enough. comes out fascinating. You can say slander on God. God can't do something. You can say slander on a land. Land is not a person. Because they slammed on a land, the land is no good. But this is what these guys went ahead and did. They they went ahead, they slandered, and uh, the Jewish people cry. And because they cry that night, happens to that was the night of Tishabov. God says, you cried for no reason. I'm going to give you a good reason to cry. But we're just about at the end of this segment. And you're going to hold through this segment. We are going to be joined by Hannah Studley. I told you, author of The Myth of Low Self-Esteem, which we got to find out how that works also. And here comes my music. So she's going to tell us about low self-esteem, how she deals with it, PTSD, talk about Hollywood, talk about Israel. Hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's a horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the Bat Cemetery. It's got a cord. I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. There's bad news from the Pacific, especially for tuna lovers everywhere. Scientists in San Francisco have started seeing Pacific bluefin tuna that are contaminated with radioactive cesium. Now there's little doubt that the contamination is a direct result of the tragic 2011 earthquake and the subsequent tsunami in Japan that crippled the Fukushima nuclear power plant and released a massive amount of irradiated material into the ecosystem. We're seeing the cesium on this side of the ocean in Tuna First because of their migratory pattern and they've reached our coast long before the radioactive debris field slowly making its way into our shores. The tainted tuna was caught off the coast of San Diego. 
And for now at least, the researchers say the cesium levels are not high enough to spark any health concerns. Seafood distributors have been working hard to assure the American public that bluefin tuna should not be affected by radiation. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain to see... And we're back! And as we're slowly but surely getting ready to have our guest. So we were just ending in the last segment. We were talking about you have to have a good reason to cry. There's always good reasons to cry. People are allowed to cry. But when the Jewish people were crying, when the spies came back and the spies made them nervous, that was considered crying for no reason. And since they cried for no reason, so uh, God says, I'm going to give you a reason to cry. So that night was the night of Tishabov, And that night became a night of crying historically. Both temples were destroyed, and I see my guest is here. So, we are joined. Now, Hannah, you can't see me, but I can see you. We're joined by Hannah Studley, author of The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. Don't let the title fool you. The book describes the life of Deborah, who travels the world working on movie sets, working with famous actors all the while while learning to fight her demons. Hannah, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good, good. I'm glad we could work it out um, with a few uh, bumps in the way, but here we are. So before we even get rolling, um, who is Hannah Studley? Wow. Um, <laughs> okay. I grew up in England, and um, I started working in the theater in uh, London, and that took me to from theater to TV to movies. I ended up in California for 16 years which is uh, where I became religious, living on Venice Beach in LA. And um, about 10 years ago, I moved here to Israel. I live in Jerusalem. I'm just a few minutes from the Shuk right now. So um, that's the beginning. <laughs> How's that? That is an excellent beginning. Now we know who you are. It's always interesting when I ask people who they are, what they have to say, and what they mm -hmm. pick to describe who they are. It's a fascinating question. So we're going to talk a lot. And the, the title of the book is interesting because you wouldn't know that it's a fascinating story. But the title of the book is uh, The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. So um, let, let's take it slow. I think I lost you. Yeah, no, I, there's helicopters overhead, so I just shut my door. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you to the helicopters. Very good. Okay, so first, first things first, why did you write the book? Well, people have been saying to me for a long time I should write a book, and the people who said that only knew parts of my life. Like, um, I went through a lot of trauma in my 20s, so people said I should write about that. And then people knew about my Hollywood experiences, so people said, why don't you write those stories? And then moving from like living in three different countries, um, people said, wow, you've gone through a lot of transformation, why don't you write about that? So I kind of stuck it all together and um, turned it into the novel that, that you're describing. Yes, that is a novel again called The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. Now, you have to remember, um, I am a teacher, and all day long, Teachers are very into talking about the child's self-esteem, and we must build the child's self-esteem. And if the child has a low self-esteem, they won't do well in school. And I get your book, and the first words on the cover are the myth of low self-esteem. Does that mean that all us teachers have been, as we say, barking up the wrong tree? 
Well, there's, I believe there's such a thing as self-esteem, but I don't believe it describes the quality of a person. I really believe that um, like Hashem, God, whatever you want to call it, does not make garbage, rubbish. And so what is actually going up and down is the quality of our thinking. And thinking flows naturally all the time. It can't actually stop. It's like buses. There's always going to be another one. So there's always an opportunity for a new thought. And that one new thought can be a good one. So saying you have low self-esteem is like, um, I, I thought recently of an, an analogy. Imagine it was your worst day ever. Um, you've been, you haven't slept in a week. You've been caught in the rain. You've got a pimple on your nose. You've just had a fight with your boss. And someone takes a photograph of you and says, this is going to be your profile picture for the rest of your life. You'd be like, ah! Yes, I think <laughs> you, know, you would. You know, a bit of sleep and a, and a comb, you could look a lot better. And it's the same with our thinking. Um, that you know, A new thought a few minutes later, I can be a completely different person if I believe that that's true, which I do believe it's for everybody is true. We all have an innate well-being, and it just gets covered up with some thinking. And that's when people see that thinking and take it seriously and then identify themselves with that thinking, which is actually transient. So I know you talk later in the book, and maybe we'll talk about it again later, but um, you're not a, again, you're not telling us teachers that we shouldn't be discussing low self-esteem. What you're really trying to teach everyone, and I assume children the same, is that we are in control of what we think. Since I'm in control of what I think, I can decide I do have self-esteem or I don't. That's really... And I can think whatever I want. And I think you even described it like with, with, with bubbles. Right. Yeah, like um, thought, thoughts are moving all the time and they have like different qualities. So, um, if you know those kids' bubbles that they make out of uh, washing up liquid with soap? And if one of those lands on you, it just goes poof, it just disappears. We have thoughts like that that are just like, they're in the background somewhere. We don't even register they're happening, we, like thinky thoughts, if you like. And then there's thoughts that are a bit harder, like say a ping pong ball. If I was to throw ping pong balls at you, it'd be really annoying, but it's not gonna hurt, right? There's thoughts that are like that. And then there are thoughts that are like a basketball. I, I was also a teacher. I taught in Los Angeles at a school called Oreliahu for about five years. And I remember watching the fourth grade boys one time out on the playground, and all of a sudden a basketball just landed on the top of my head. I mean, I swear I saw stars. I mean, I, I, I wanted to cry, but not in front of the fourth grade boys, obviously. So, and, I, and that basketball on the top of my head was, re it really hurt. And, and some thoughts are like that. But if you think about it, all those three examples are balls full of air. You know, they're, they're all kind of made of the same thing. They have the same stuff inside of them. And, and all thoughts are actually made of the same stuff, which is some kind of mystical spiritual energy, which I have no idea what I'm saying right now, because I don't understand that. But what I do know is that raw material is constantly moving through my mind. And like you said, what I do with it is kind of up to me. It's kind of neutral until I put some meaning on it. So one of the... it's. Your whole book, with with which we'll talk about, with some fascinating, interesting stories, is almost. I actually, you told me this. Um, you made an exciting, fun book to read, so that you could like intersperse it with. You know, you could take care of your emotional issues just by changing your thought process. Is that what you were trying to do? Yeah, I think. Um in my experience, I mean, for, for example, I, I love reading research books. 
I, I'm weird like that. I find them fascinating. I love re research about neurology and, and the, the body and the mind. But most people don't find that those kind of books interesting. Even anecdotal books can be a bit dry sometimes. So what I thought is if I take this information and put it into a fiction, into a novel form, like overwhelmed parents and tired teachers are more likely to read a, a fiction or a novel than they are another research book. They don't need more homework. Whereas it's in, in the vehicle of entertainment, it's hopefully getting across some ideas that are helpful. Okay, so and we'll uh, I think we'll get back into that. Let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, you start in London. There we don't have to get so super specific, um, but you did suffer from what everybody calls PTSD. Just to help people out, that name is in the news all the time now. I used to think it was only soldiers, but now yes. I see it's everywhere. What does that mean? So PTSD stands for post traumatic stress disorder, and it went into the DSM, which is a, like a, a book that psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, social workers use uh, as a list of um, diagnoses when they're working with clients, patients. And it went in there in about 1984, which is actually when I was first attacked. Um, I actually suffered three muggings. Um, the first one fractured my skull. Um, that happened in a nightclub. The second one, uh, about a year later, I was mugged by three men in Manchester. I was dragged to the ground and had the living daylights beaten out of me and left for almost for dead. And I got pretty, um, not very well after that one because I got quite scared to go out, um, understandably. And so the symptoms were um, getting stuck in a loop of thinking. Like my thoughts would go round and round and round about keep reliving the same thing. And I, it stopped me sleeping properly and, and eating. And I, I was just, I got in quite a difficult place. It got quite dark, um, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And um, so I decided to move to London because clearly Manchester was the problem. So my insight took me down to London where unfortunately I got mugged again. And uh, that time a kid threw a bicycle at my head whilst I was riding home and actually broke my neck, it, the, the bones in my neck. Um, so I went down pretty fast after that third one because hey, I had evidence, you know, like. I knew that if I left my house, something really serious and dangerous was going to happen. And I got very scared and very frightened. And so at that time, nobody really knew that diagnosis or didn't know what, what was happening. So all I ever got was a cup of tea and go home. Right. So I had to kind of cope on my own. Whereas today, there are lots of um, therapists and, and counselors and organizations that are trained to help people with that. In fact, I'm, I'm a member of uh, Hatzala here in Jerusalem we have a psychotrauma unit. And it's at, Israel's the first country in the world to have this unit. Um, country, other countries are trying to copy and, and get training from us now. And so what happens is if someone is in a, um, a, a calling the, the emergency number here, and it could be a car accident, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be, God forbid, something's happened to, to your family, and, and people could be traumatized in that situation. So the call center here will assess that and send someone from our unit and one of the first things I was taught in our training is that if someone is stabilized in the moment, they are 80% less chance of having PTSD afterwards, which makes sense if you think about it as in terms of what I was saying about thought, is that if I am brought back to the moment and I see that my thoughts are, are right here, right now, and I'm safe right here, right now, then I'm going to process that experience a lot easier. Whereas if I get sent home like I was in Manchester, 
and just went home and uh, sat there in the dark, just reliving it and reliving it, it made recovery a, a lot harder and a lot longer. So we're, we're trained to, to help people to, to um, come back to the moment and, and understand what's happening to them much quicker. That is amazing. The brain is amazing. Hatzel is an ambulance corps. For those who don't know, it's an ambulance corps. There's volunteer ambulance corps called Hatzalah in many cities in the country. Um, so when you say Hatzalah, just as a side point, that's not Mugan David Adom. This is a, volunteer, a voluntary um, ambulance corps. Yes, you're nodding. Okay, very good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you, but you didn't, so obviously you didn't discover right away how to deal with your thoughts. Is that something that really took you many years, or did you run into somebody that, that, that had that idea early on? So, yeah, you're right. I had no idea at the beginning. I, I see it now as an innocent misunderstanding that um, I, I was taking my thoughts seriously. I, like, when, for example, at the end where I was believing that if I left the house, you know, I, I imagined a bus was going to go run over me, you know, and like buses didn't even go my, down my street. That's how much my, my thinking had become very bizarre. And I had evidence. I had police reports and x-rays. You couldn't have convinced me otherwise. So I was living in this world of, of believing those thoughts. And eventually, thank God, I did ask for help. And I found a group of people that were, were amazing and really, really helped me to start. They started me on the journey of understanding what had happened. And one of the first things that uh, this mentor said to me, she said, are you willing to let go of your story? And I was like very offended at that at first because um, I, 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 what I heard her saying was, it didn't happen or it didn't hurt and you should get over it. That's not what she said, but that's how I heard it. Um, and what I wanted to scream back at her was it did happen and it did hurt and I can't get over it. So she really helped me see that I'd become so wrapped up in my own story that it'd become part of my identity. I was the girl who'd been mugged three times, you know, and I got very clever at being able to get that into any conversation. I could have you um, feeling sorry for me. I could have you be impressed about how I like coped or didn't cope. <laughs> and I could have you like wowed by these stories. Um, and so when she suggested I let go of it, I was like, <gasps> you know, then who am I going to be if I can't talk about this or if I let go or like it was, it was quite frightening and threatening at first, even though it was a horrible thing. And that's kind of one of the, the natures of, of PTSD and, and the symptoms of, of most um, psychiatric uh, uh, diagnoses is that we're stuck in this this thought um, thought pattern, and, and and it's very hard to get out of it when you believe it to be true. So what they gently did with me is started pointing out that it wasn't so true. In fact, you know, I could leave the house and not get hurt, and that's been true now for thank God almost thirty years. So it was it was a way of like re retraining my brain at the beginning. Um, but what I know now is that I don't actually have to do anything. The brain is made in such an amazing way. It's almost like, imagine a snow globe. If you keep shaking up a snow globe, it's going to stay like swirling, like a storm, like a thought storm. That's what my brain was like. My brain was as if it was stuck in a snow globe. And what I know now is that if you let it alone, it will actually heal and settle on its own, which is an incredible thing. And it took um, it took several quite a few years for me to explore different techniques and methods, which I found looking back now were all mixing up my thoughts, the analyzing, the go back into the past. There's like I heard recently there's something like 450 different therapies out there right now, 
And most of them, what they have in common is they want to fix the thoughts. They want to color them, rename them, reframe them, number them one to ten, I, you know, whatever that is they, they, they ask you to do. And what I found is if, if I just understand the mechanism that it's going to pass on by, I don't actually have to do anything. There's always going to be a new thought. And just understanding that is what's brought a lot of freedom and a lot of help. That is really amazing. My, when I read the book and even listening to you now, it, it sounds like that someone who's dealing with all these thoughts should be able to sit down with you. I don't know, 20 minutes later, they should be all better. Is it as easy as it sounds? Um, that actually can happen, yes. Um, I've, I've had conversations with people who, um, for example, I was talking to a seminary girl uh, a while ago, and, and I explained these ideas to her, and she said, she said, you mean it's like we're all living in our own video game? And I actually used that line in, in the book because I was like, yes, brilliant. That's exactly what it's like. We're all living in our own separate realities, which are created by thought moment to moment. And for example, two people could go to a wedding or two people could watch a movie and they're both going to have completely different experiences of that, that, experience, that situation, right? So it can't be the, the wedding or the movie that's um, giving you the, the experience. It's your thoughts about it, which is true of phobias, for example. If you had a phobia about um, flying, then that fear usually starts um, a few hours or, or days or weeks before the flight. But if you think about it, it must be their thoughts about the, the airplane or being up in the air. It's not the actual airplane that's causing the thoughts. So when someone kind of understands that, it's like, whoa, a whole new like experience of, of living life it, it just changes because most of us want to blame you know, our family member or the bus or, or the neighbor or the weather or the government for how I feel, like, oh, she makes me so angry, you know? Nobody can actually make you angry. It's my thoughts about that person that makes me angry. So once you see that, everybody else is off the hook. And I have free will to do that or not. You know, I have free will to, to um, have a funky day if I want, <laughs> or sometimes it just happens. And I've learned that not to be frightened of it. I don't have to be frightened if I have, you know, scary thoughts or, or I wake up with a headache or in a bad mood or something because I'm human. It can happen, you know. And so I, I just know it's going to pass. And just knowing that makes it pass quicker. So when I've explained that to people, for example, I had a, a lady come who had had a terrible traumatic experience. And intuitively, I, I didn't ask her what actually happened because that never helped me. So I explained for like an hour and a half about how, how the human experience works and how it happens. And the next day she called me and she said, thank you so much for not asking me what happened. She said, therapists and psychiatrists have been torturing her for 10 years, making her relive it and relive it and relive it. And just in that space of a few hours, she'd gotten free of something that had been hell for her for, for 10 years. And she, she was sleeping well already. I mean, that's incredible and such a, a privilege for me to be part of that and see that in other people. So, yeah, it can, it can happen pretty quick. Unbelievable. So, again, we're joined by Hannah Studley, author of The, Mil the Myth of Low Self-Esteem. And uh, clearly one of Hannah's goals is to put therapists and psychiatrists and everybody else out of business, which is fine because, you know, it, especially if it works and keeps people happy. <laughs> but uh, with a little bit of time left, there's so many fun things in the book. Um, 
obviously been talking about some of the situations that you dealt with. Um, what did you do for a living when you were in London, moved to, um, moved to L.A.? What exactly was that? I didn't even know how to explain it myself. So I, I did special effects in movies. Um, specifically, it's called animatronics, and they are very sophisticated uh, computerized puppets. It's kind of like a, a dying art now because obviously everything's done on computers. But um, I became known for um, making copies of real animals. So if the story had a real animal in it and I had to talk or get run over or do something that an animal can't do or is not allowed to do, then we would make a copy of exactly that animal and they would cut from the real animal to my puppet and you won't know the difference. So people, when I tell people what movies I worked on, they say, well, there's no puppets in that movie. And I go, thank you. <laughs> well <laughs> Obviously done. I did a good job. You know, like, does your dog talk? Because if there was a talking dog or a talking tiger in that movie, then clearly that was my puppet. They say, but that's computers. I'm like, no, this, is, this was back in the 90s when they were still using puppets. I, I was always freelance, but I mostly worked for Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Jim had made the Muppets and Kermit and Miss Piggy. Sure. So we, we worked in the creature shop. So we made all kinds of creatures for other movies. And I can tell you that making a monster or a dinosaur is pretty easy because no one can tell you it's the wrong shade of green or too big or too small, because who knows, right? Um, but everybody knows what a tiger or a cat or a dog looks like. And so the, the attention to detail had to be absolutely perfect. And for example, um, an animal like that with fur, I would put one hair at a time, pop, 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 like around, because if, if you look at a, an animal's face, the hair changes direction. So we were using rabbit hair and goat hair and dyeing it the right colors and putting it on and, and they, that skin of hair would go over a very complicated um, mechanical mechanism that had motors in it that would make the animal move his head and talk and wiggle his ears and um, yeah, it was quite quite a magical thing. and. I think like I did in the book, I kind of tie that in with the, the, the counseling work I do because my job in the movies was to convince you that something was real that wasn't. You know, like like um, I mentioned in the book, I, I worked with some guys who had just finished Jurassic Park. Their, their job was to like make, you know, earthquakes and, and, and all those kind of things, that rigging kind of um, special effects. And then we're doing the animals and the creatures and people think it's real, then that's kind of what my brain does to me all the time. It convinces myself that things that are real that aren't. <clears throat> so, so that's what we did in movies. And um, it was a lot of fun. I got paid silly money to travel around the world to work with the most amazing, incredibly talented people. And, and I was very grateful for it. It was not the kind of thing you think of in school that you'd be able to do. But um, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the, for the fun and the great time I had doing that. Oh wow! Just to say, as an aside, clearly you had to work on different movie sets with famous actors, actresses, um, and you always hear people talk about they are nice people, they're not nice people, they're fun to work with, they're not fun to work with, they ignore you, they don't ignore you. What was your general experience with that? Or there's no general. Um, <laughs> I'd say a bit of everything you just said. Yeah, there, there's times when it's a lot of fun. Like I got to dance with John Travolta. I mean, that's pretty special. I felt like Princess Diana at the time. <laughs> that, that's, it was quite amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I worked with Eddie Murphy and Steven Spielberg. And, you know, that, those little moments are, are quite incredible. 
Um, but making movies in general can be quite slow and boring. Um, you know, there's, we used to say, hurry up and wait. That was a lot of the time. You get everything ready and then you're waiting, 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 waiting for something that lights the, the actor to show up, you know. So there, there's, it's like, um, it's a work of like highs and lows. You could be like going quite slowly and then something goes wrong and everybody's screaming and fighting and, and like trying to get it fixed because thousands of dollars are flying through the air while they're waiting for you to fix something. Um, but then we get to travel and, you know, like I spent six months in Australia, I spent, you know, like three months in Texas, you know, the places that I might not have gone to otherwise. Um, and then there are the people who, who will not talk to you. And there's the people who want to be your best friend. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's a big mixture, but I think what kind of got to me in the end and the, you know, people always ask me why I left was, um, there's quite a lot of dishonesty and the egos and, and the, you know, spending so much time and so much money on things that do they really matter. So I started thinking maybe I should be doing documentaries, maybe I should be doing something else. And it took me about two years of thinking I wanted to leave the business before I actually did. We, we call it the golden handcuffs because, you know, like if, if it's like, well, okay, I'll do one more movie with Brad Pitt. All right, I'll do that one. Okay, I, I guess I'll, I'll do one more. You know, it's like, it's hard to turn down. <laughs> so the last movie I did was Stuart Little, um, the movie with the, he's a little mouse in a car in New York. So I was supposed to be the supervisor on that on that movie of, of all the creatures. It was like the pinnacle of my, my career. And I started to become religious and uh, you know, observing Shabbat at the time. So I just, I, had, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I had to call the producer and I remember looking at the phone thinking, as soon as I make this phone call, that's it. My career's over because there are plenty of other people who'd want to take my place. So I made the phone call and, and that was it, you know, end of my career. So um, I don't regret it for a minute. Um, Good. I don't miss it. You know, doing the props for a third grade uh, school Hanukkah play <laughs> was just as exciting in, in many ways. Um, you know, it's very different, obviously, but um, it's third graders aren't m that much difference to movie directors, actually. They want what they want and they want it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and they're not going to listen. <laughs> and unreasonable. Um, so, it, you know, it's it, it, like I said, I'm very grateful for what it was at the time. And I did get to meet some amazing people. We got an Academy Award for our work on, on Babe, which was the second movie I did. Um, so that, that, that usually, um, gets a conversation going. <laughs> so yeah, it was a great time. Okay, good. So I have about a minute left. So, um, if you could <laughs> leave us with two things, number one, again, I'm speaking to Hannah Studley, author of the myth of low self-esteem. Number one is how can we get your book? And number two, what would you like to leave us with? Thank you. Um, my book is on Amazon. You can you can uh, put, look into Amazon. You can either put in my name, Hannah Studley, spelled C-H-A-N-A-S-T-U-D-L-E-Y, um, or The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. It's on Kindle or paperback. And um, the last thing I want to leave you with is I have just started a whole new project about pain relief. All these ideas I've been talking about, I'm now seeing how, like I had chronic pain from all those injuries, and it's all gone. So I've just done research in, in connecting these ideas with, with pain relief. And so that's my next project. So look out for that one. Hannah, I can't thank you enough for, I know, for you staying up late because you're an early riser. I really, really appreciate it. We had a great time. I hope we talk in the future. I wish you lots of success. Have a great Chavez, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, bye. So we are rolling. Not too many seconds left. 
Um, what a, an amazing person, amazing story. The power of the brain, the power of what my thoughts can create is, is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable how powerful the brain that God gave us. It can really get through anything. And, and really, that's what Chana is trying to teach you in the book. Really, a great read, even though the title is The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. You think it's one of these self-help books, which it might be. But really, really, it's got great stories and great lessons and a fascinating life. And here comes my music. We got one, one segment left. We're going to be doing Rabbi Yotis and Goldson. I got a fantastic story to end with. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. Good morning, I got the We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And after a couple weeks of a hiatus and some miscommunication, we are again joined by my friend Rabbi Yonison Goldson. Yonison, how are you today? I am wonderful, Rosemary. Glad to be back with you. Thank you so much. So we know, as always, the clock is ticking. Go for it. All right. Well, you might be aware that the first Democratic primary debate was held last night, a mere 17 months before the presidential election. Many of us have grown cynical about the benefits of these debates, which tend toward aphorisms and bromides on one extreme and sandbox bickering on the other. So are debates good or bad? As with so many questions, the answer is, it depends. In this week's Torah portion, Moses sends in spies to investigate the land of Israel. Their first mistake was that they wanted to go at all. Since God had already promised he was giving them a good land, it was chutzpah to think that they had to check it out for themselves. As much as the spies believed in their own sincerity and objectivity, in truth, they had already made up their minds that they were going to find reasons why the land was not good for them. Consequently, they ignored the arguments of Joshua and Caleb 
in favor of the land and instead brought back a bad report that convinced the people not to enter. Debate provides an opportunity for deeper understanding, but only when we go into debate with an open mind, with a willingness to hear the other side before we pass judgment and a willingness to accept that we might be wrong. Otherwise, debate merely provides an excuse to reinforce our preconceptions. If we want to get to the truth, we have to be open to the possibility that we haven't gotten to it yet. And with that, I wish you a good Shabbos. Yeah, and thank you. A great message, super timely. Have a great Shabbos, and I hope to speak to you in two weeks. Well, God willing. Have a good Shabbos. Oh, yeah, good Shabbos. Be well. Okay, always good to hear a great perspective with timely stuff. That's why I like to bring on my friend. Okay, so Kelsey is ready. My poster is right behind me. We are up to the eighth letter in the Jewish alphabet, the letter Ches or the letter Chet. It's, I guess it's shaped like a C that you sort of turned on its side. Pretty simple looking letter. Um, it's one of the hard ones to pronounce. The English language doesn't have the Ch sound. If you grew up in Russia, they do have the ch sound, so it's a very easy sound to pronounce. If you grow up without that sound in your vocabulary, it becomes more difficult. So it's one of the harder letters to pronounce if you didn't grow up with that letter. My word this week is a very interesting word. The word is cheshek. Cheshek means, it's a great word, it means desire, it means what you want, you're looking to accomplish, you're looking to do. And, uh, and I think really um, that's all, everything we've been talking about today um, you had the spies, they had their desire, what they wanted. Certainly we have uh, Hannah we spoke to for the last half an hour, all the things she wants to do, what she's accomplishing, she's in coaching, now she winds up with pain management, she has desire, she has cheshek, she's out there to, to help, really, it's really fantastic. And, uh, and the truth is, even with the Democratic uh, debate last night, all these men, women, they all have a, an amazing passion uh, for what they do, whether you like them, you don't like them, that's really not the conversation. But but they certainly have a desire and a passion for what they do, and that's why people vote for them, and that's why people watch. So my couple minutes left, i got to tell you a great story I just read. So it's after the Rosh Hashanah holiday, the story takes place in Israel, and uh, you have a group of people, they're in a city called B'nai Brak, and they want to travel back to Jerusalem that night. And they go out waiting for the bus, and the bus is not coming. 12 o'clock, 12.30, 12.45. People are going to the bus company. Where is my bus? What's going on with my bus? How come my bus is not here? And people are getting frustrated and nervous. And uh, finally, 1.30 in the morning, a bus pulls in. The only problem was, you know how, I, I guess you know, if you've ever seen buses, it says on the top of the bus, it says where the bus is heading towards. So you know not to get on the wrong bus. And this bus, instead of saying Jerusalem said it's going to the city of Rehovot. The bus is empty. You have a full bus stop of people that all want to go to Jerusalem. So they say, bus driver, come on, can you do us a favor? Just change your, your route, go to Jerusalem. The guy says, no, can't do it, not allowed, get in trouble. And people are begging and pleading and asking and everything. And finally the guy says, okay, I'll probably get in trouble, but fine. Change the sign on his bus, says Jerusalem, everybody gets on. Pleasant bus, I mean, thanks to the driver, so kind of him, so thoughtful, and he's such a nice person, so wonderful, so amazing. And they're driving along, very pleasant ride. And as they're getting close to Jerusalem, getting close to the, the depot, so the, um, one of the passengers goes to the bus driver and says, you know, look, you're amazing, we, we love you, but we know these buses all have GPSs on them. I mean, your boss could fire you, they're going to see you went to the wrong bus depot. So the bus driver said, I tell you the truth. I said, I am the Jerusalem bus. 
But when they when the call went out that there was no bus and uh, somebody had to show up, no one wanted to go. Everyone said, you know what's going to happen. Whoever shows up to take this crowd to Jerusalem, everyone's going to be complaining and yelling and screaming like it's the bus driver's fault. It's not the bus driver's fault. For whatever reason, the, there was a missing bus. So no one wanted to take the job. So I said, I tell you what. I'll take the bus, but you have to give me permission to change my sign on top. Because psychologically, what will happen? What will happen is, instead of everybody yelling at me, because how come I'm so late? They're going to say, oh, you did us the greatest favor. You're the most wonderful person in the world. We couldn't have done it without you. You're so fantastic. And they'll shower me with blessings. Um, so for that reason, I decided that uh, I will take the bus ride, but on the condition that I'm allowed to sort of pretend that uh, that we were going somewhere else. So the psychology is fantastic, and the 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 lesson is even more fantastic, right? And that's everything's their attitude. I can be angry at you, I can be happy with you, and you're doing the same thing for me. In the end of the day, you're doing me a favor. So am I happy with a favor? Am I unhappy with a favor? It really depends how I look at it. Do I recognize you're doing me a favor, or do I think that uh, you should have done this earlier and it's completely your fault that it wasn't taken care of? So again, like that driver had a desire to help, but he also didn't want to get yelled and screamed at. So he figured out a way to keep everybody happy. So we've had a great show, lots of things, but like always, it's time to wrap it up. So first of all, thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team. Big team again today. I got Kelsey, Cole, Alana, Ethan, Angel. Thank you all of you. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.